Love Talk Radio. Life 
in our present condition out in, in New Jersey? Well, it's, it's listen, it's relatively quiet. I mean, you look at, let's say, you know, New York City, which you guys are very well aware of, obviously, um, known for people being outside. So I think the the difference in, in a, a region like that is more noticeable than it is in New Jersey. But, you know, listen, the highways are barren. You know, the same advisories exist that nobody should be out unless it's a, you know, a, uh, you know, emergency type of situation or people that are working for hospitals and stuff. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just a weird time. And it, like, you know, I hate to say stuff that probably is repeated, you know, day in and day out by a bunch of different people, but it's just, it's just something that's very hard to relate to, you know, just the quietness and the fear that exists amongst people. And, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is legitimate you know, legitimate fears that people can have about what can happen. And the fact that what's going on right now is so, you know, uncomparable to really anything that we've ever seen before. And I I mean, I've said for the suggestion for, you know, my own podcast and out in the public, if you can find positivity right now is the time to share it. You know, now is the time to, if, if there is things that you're excited about or, happy about or good spins that you could put on what's going on. This is where you share it with people. And hopefully somebody that may be feeling a little bit down about it, which they have every right to be, may be able to put a little more of a smile on their face at a time that really isn't requiring it. Uh, Like, you know, we chat before the show starts and Rich, you know, we're going to shoot up to Connecticut and you're going to tell us about life up there for the moment. Uh, but me personally, you know, it, it's kind of hit home. My brother tested, my excuse me, my brother-in-law tested positive, uh, but he's home. He had an underlying condition. He went to the hospital for pneumonia. Uh, he should be able to work himself, uh, uh, you know, out of harm's way. Uh, but here it is, you know, like I said, we're at a point where we know people or we know people who know people, and I'm not trying to make light. Uh, and this Wednesday, past Wednesday, for the first time I was overwhelmed in the morning with that sense of doom and foreboding, Uh, and it stayed with me for most of the morning and afternoon, and my wife and I, you know, we we thought it more than a coincidence that both of us should have our first, you know, uh, full-blown panic attack together, Uh, because I just happened to be off that day. and it was weird. You know, by by the evening, I calmed down. And I, I've been calm through all, throughout all this. You know, I'm more interested in the human aspect of this and how we negotiate uh, this pandemic. Uh, so uh, the time has come. It's hitting home. So what say you, Rich? Well, it hit home for me. Um, as we were talking about before the show started, um, my niece's husband's actually in the hospital with it, with double pneumonia, complication of it. Um, he's expected to be okay. Um, they took him off the antiviral because he was doing well. So, you know, not in any kind of danger. We're worried that my niece has it, obviously having lived, living in the same house. So it has hit home, as you said. And then, you know, life up here... Um, Well, you know, I live in a beach town, as I've told you guys before, and um, typically at this time of year, you know, and and Sam's familiar with the town, 
there are people everywhere. You know, the bars are starting, people are trying to sit outside a little bit. The bars are picking up. You know, the restaurants are picking up. You go to our little downtown area, and there's nobody there. I mean, there's like maybe five people walking. Um, and it's really kind of creepy, you know. And, and um, when I go out to take the dog for a walk or whether it's, you know, to go on a bike ride or go on a run, of course, I'm keeping a very far distance from other people. But, you know, running along the beach and, and not seeing a lot of people there. And, um, and unfortunately, sometimes you do see people and they're congregated, which, you know, makes you want to pull your hair out. But, um, but just seeing the quietness of it all um, at a time when typically, you know, li- little towns like this with the beach, you know, will wake up, it's sound asleep. And, um, and so to get through it, you know, to answer your other question, Mike, what I try to do is I try to focus on the good medical news. Um, and there is some. You know, I was reading something today I like to share with people to lift people up that, you know, Dr. Fauci was saying that, um, you know, he expects that by mid-summer in most, or mid-June, I'm sorry, not mid-summer, mid-June, in most places will be down to virtually nothing, and that he feels that, you know, in the fall it likely will come back, but he thinks that by that point research will have gotten to a point where there's already research going on showing very promising results of ways to treat it, A, and then B, vaccines that could be, you know, ready or almost ready by then. So what he basically said was, you know, we have to ride out the next few weeks. It'll start getting better, and then it'll get a lot better, and you'll be able to breathe. And then likely when it when it's ready to come back, we will be, you know, the full armamentarium of the United States and the world, really, around finding cures or, or treatments and vaccines will have been in full motion and that we will be much more ready for this in the fall. So, so I take heart in that. You know, I, I look at the medical science, and, and when I see good news like that, I like to talk about it because it makes me feel better. That's how I get through it. Sam, you and I are charged with the New York City perspective. You spend a lot of time in Manhattan, both between Manhattan and Brooklyn. Uh, I'll, I'll speak for Queens for a second. My mom lives in Queens, and, you know, uh, it seems like they've been getting hit the hardest uh, of the five boroughs, and their hospital system is rather taxed at the moment. So what are you seeing in Manhattan, Sam? Uh, yesterday it seemed like people had been stir-crazy, and with a nice day there seemed to be more people out and about than um, than generally, uh, you know. People seem to have been following it more or less, you know. There's still, of course, a... a uh, you know, uh, it, it's a city. You're going to see people out there one way or the other, but whether it's just the, us delivery drivers or, or whether it's just people needing some air, wanting to walk to the to the pier. Um, but yesterday, because of how sunny it was and the fact that it was in the 60s, it felt like uh, it felt like people were like, all right, let's take today to get some air. Um, it's funny that you're, you're mentioning that I, I'm – you know, split my time between Manhattan and Brooklyn because I'm literally on the greatest bridge of all time right now, the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, heading heading home. So um, I, I I've been uh, I, I've been in Manhattan more lately than I have in Brooklyn. Um, but even from the Brooklyn perspective, and I'll, I'll let you piggyback on this, uh, it, it seems like like you know Brooklyn has the most people and has consistently since the beginning of consolidation has had 
the highest population of people in New York City. Uh, so it's obviously not lacking when it comes to actual human bodies. And generally speaking, you know, people have – there's been more of a calm even in Brooklyn than usual. Uh, you know what? You, you, you nailed it rather well saying uh, the other day was a rather nice day, and for my taste there was far too many people over on the promenade by the Arizona Bridge. Uh, social social distancing went out the window, uh, but be, perhaps it's a little bit of spring fever. Uh, for the most part, you know what I can see, and I'm all over the borough. People are adhering to you know the guidelines and advice being given. Uh, some some neighborhoods better than others, but you know, uh, sure. At this time, we'd like to give a shout out to all the healthcare workers, the nurses, nurses, doctors, emergency rooms, and staff, and you know, they're doing an awesome job. I mean, I can speak for my partner's wife. She works in the emergency room. And uh, I'm hearing things, and you know, that are rather disturbing, and she's taxed, and, you know, it's going to be a process. Uh, but I would also like to throw a shout-out there for the truck drivers. Uh, the food chain is holding up, you know, and, and uh, I'm pleased to see a sense of calm taking taking over, you know, uh, grocery shoppers, you know. Uh, I'm walking into supermarkets all over the borough, and they're fairly well stocked. If they don't have a product today, perhaps in two days they might have it. Uh, but there's no shortages out there. Uh, there's There's been a calm uh, amongst the neighborhoods, and uh, it's good to see. So, you know, let's continue. Uh, Mike, I wanted call. to, uh, before we finish, about that specific, I wanted to uh, mention something that I've been seeing in Manhattan um, regarding the healthcare workers, and, and I'm not sure if they're doing this in any other boroughs. You can speak to, to that, but at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, every day, and literally the same thing happened today no matter where I, I am in the borough, uh, usually I've been on 72nd Street. Weirdly enough, I've been on the Upper West Side. Today I was right on Broadway south of 14th Street, and every – Seven o'clock on the dot, uh, people open their windows, people are honking their horns and giving it up for the healthcare workers all around the city. So that that's been a, a really special, you know, uh, chill-inducing thing to see New Yorkers collectively come together to make some noise. Especially when I've been saying how much quieter Manhattan is. And so at seven o'clock, if you guys are anybody's in Manhattan, and, and again, I'm not sure what they're doing in any other boroughs. But that is something I've been noticing. The the quiet is uh, uh, broken by a roarous applause by uh, by all of New Yorkers for uh, healthcare workers. Any such civic acknowledgement going on in Jersey, John? Uh, you see, you see it kind of uh, maybe not as prominent as Sam as uh, Sam pointed out, but um, I think it's a as we're all sports fans here. It's a good. I think it's a you know, we take, we should take our knowledge and what we're used to in sports as being part of the crowd and, and, and do that, share that with the healthcare workers, the first responders, the, the people that are really on the front lines going out of their way to protect and help people right now. It's something that we, we've always been behind. We've always thrown our support, whether it's verbally or, you know, just, just out in the general public saying the right thing, but, you know, now that we don't have sports teams to cheer for, you know, we, we should, you know, get a little more behind 
and, and do, you know, pretty much what Sam, you know, mentioned as, as far as seeing. You know, you see healthcare workers out doing their job. You see policemen, firefighters, you know, being first responders, taking care of people at, at hospitals and stuff like that. Give them an ovation. Get, you know, stand up. Give them a chair. Give them, you know, the same thing that we'd be giving our favorite athletes when we're seeing on a baseball field that we can't see right now. Rich, you want to add anything before we transition? Yeah, you know, um, I do. Uh, here, what they're doing, and probably doing it everywhere, is um, in addition to the cheering and all, they're asking people to put out your Christmas decorations to show, you know, Christmas is a season of hope, right? And um, so some people are doing that. They're, they put up their trees. They, uh, they're putting, you know, lights in the windows and all of that. Like my neighbor here has those electric candles that he puts in his windows at Christmas time, and, and he's done that. So, um, so you know, little, whether it's cheering or whether it's anything like that, to acknowledge people, and that means the grocery store workers, the truckers, the policemen, firemen, of course, nurses and doctors, you know, just acknowledging the people who are, who are saving our asses. Let's come right down to it. That's what they're doing. They're saving our asses. And so God bless them, right? And then, um, and, and, you know, and, one other thing I read that I want to share that I thought was interesting is when this is over, and it will be, when this is over, let's not take for granted stuff. And I'll give one or two examples just to be short. Going to a ball game, I mean, as a partial season ticket holder for years and years and years, I'll admit that there are times that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, they're home Saturday, I'm going to the game. All right, okay, let's go, let's get in the car, you know with that kind of an attitude. I'm never going to do that again. It's a blessing to be able to go to that ballpark. And if they lose, I'm not going to walk out mad because it's a blessing just to be there. I now know what it's like to not have it. Um, so, you know, let's not take – and, and like hang out with you guys. Like, if we go to a game, I'm not going to look at that as like, okay, we'll just do it again a couple weeks from now. No, enjoy those moments because we now know what we had because at least for the time being, we don't have it. And I read there's like probably like 20 things that not only with sports, but, you know, like life in general. Just, just don't take these things for granted anymore because, you know what, look in the mirror. You all, we all do it, whether it's, you know, visiting with family. Oh, you know, I'm not going to come over tonight. I'm, you know, a little tired. Don't take that stuff for granted anymore. And if nothing else, it, it's going to teach us that lesson. Let us open up the discourse regarding baseball. And I'll read what I wrote earlier today as far as the show, to play or not to play, that is the question. Whether it is noble in the mind to pursue a modified schedule and potentially risk the health and well-being of entire organizations, stadium employees, and fans, or continue taking arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing endless COVID-19 pandemic. President Trump, who is anxious to get the economy churning again this past week, held a meeting with the various major sports commissioners. However, Mets broadcaster Ron Darling does not believe there will be a season. And there's the rub. So it's an open discussion uh, regarding baseball, a tentative plan uh, to pursue and, 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 and actually play this regular season. Uh, the folly of it, the, I, I guess the positives, if there's any, uh, Trump commission, uh, commissioner's meeting, Ron Darling, Sam, the floor is yours. 
Um, based off of what, um, and I'm, I'm just getting the name wrong. What, what, what's the doctor, the CDC doctor again? Fauci. Oh, you got me. Anybody? Fauci. Fauci. Um, based off of what he was saying, that things should dissipate to a non-existent level by June, and our, you know, we have been talking about July 1st being the the uh, uh, cutoff symbolically and uh, and literally. Um, it sounds like Darling might be wrong that we we might be able to get some games in. Um, you know, I, I have contemplated whether or not I want a butchered season. Um, and and just to talk about just to piggyback on what Rich was saying too, you know. It, I guess you know what I'm, I'm. I'm trying to wrap my head around how you know there's going to be an asterisk one way or the other. But then again, you know what Rich is saying about how blessed we are to even have these games. Why am I denying any possibility of any baseball? We'll always know what 2020 was. It's not going to matter regardless in, in terms of in any asterisk or whatever. Let's have some ball games. It's a blessing, and you know think. We're, we're never going to look at crowds the same way again, much less just a being at a ball game. So I, I, I think that combined with uh, what the doctor said, um, as well as what, you know, the, the hopes and dreams of our baseball fans and baseball, every, uh, you know, the actual uh, administration of baseball, I, I think we still possibly can get games and I'm staying optimistic, which is, seems to be like the theme of the uh of the podcast is put a smile on somebody's face excuse me <laughs> yeah this is going to be de- a definite two-round topic so john you know the floor is open uh, a tentative schedule you know in this instance does haste make waste should they you know rush to start the season uh neutral site baseball you name it what say you I'm going to start out by making a statement that may sound a little selfish, but I'm going to back up what I'm saying after I say it. I don't think we should even consider playing a baseball game without any crowd. Now, I know that's one of the the tabled options, one of the things that could happen if they get to a point where they feel confident enough to play sports again, let alone baseball. But, you know, outside of the obvious fact where I want to be at the game, I know Rich, Mike, and Sam want to be at the game, the, the, I, I don't feel any safer watching a game on television with no crowd. You could say that the people that are in the stadium or would be in the stadium are safe, but does that mean that the players are safe? You tell me that you can't bring a crowd of 10,000 people in because the thought of this virus spreading exists. Well, what happens if it impacts one player, one player's wife? You're telling me it's okay for 25 ball players times two plus the coaches and the umpires and whoever happens to be at the game? You mean to tell me that that's okay for them and the chance of this virus spreading to them and through them is any less of a big deal as it would be if there was a crowd there? And how does it impact the game when it's played? Because if you're trying to play a game with this pandemic still going on, I'll assume that 
the fear is a little bit down at this point where they consider playing a game. But let's say there's a runner at first and the first baseman's there and the umpire's there and the first base coach is there. Are they all wondering if each other has it or not? I I just think it's going to cause more overthinking. And I would love to see baseball, but I can handle not having a baseball season as opposed to trying to do something that would end up maybe being a waste of time for everybody. Number one, I can't imagine watching a, you know, a, a game without any fans there because fans are what make a sport a sport. But then do you mean to tell me that the players that are there, everybody that makes up the contingent of the crowd, which we know will be over 50 people together, does that make them more holier than thou? Does that make them better than any other group of 40 or 50 people that would want to get together that has waited weeks upon weeks and then probably turning into months at some point? Is it fair for a group of baseball players to get together and play a game? But let's say the the group of us can't get together and bring another 10, 12 people and play a game in a park down the road. I don't know. I just think there's a lot of different aspects you could, you could think of this. But number one, I just can't imagine seeing any sporting event played without a crowd. So that's all I got to say. Rich, pick up the ball and run with it. Well, a couple couple of thoughts on that one. Um, you know, it, it's not entirely unprecedented for a president to get involved in sports. You know, two quick examples, FDR asked the nation to continue playing baseball during World War II because, you know, for mental reasons and to keep, to keep morale up. Now, I know that's a much different thing. I get that. But and then also Clinton, if you remember, when the baseball strike was going on, he, he brought both sides to the White House and tried to get them to um, – to work it out. So the involvement of government in sports is not unprecedented. The circumstances are. So what, what happened yesterday with the commissioners, I get it. I mean, I get the fact that, you know, what was the spirit of it was, look, the White House knows, Congress knows, we all know, people are going out of their minds. And sports has a way of calming people down, giving us something to watch, you know, having some sense of normalcy, and it might help take some of the fear and some of the anxiety out of situations. Obvious. So now the question becomes, can you do it, right? And so when this thing first started, I tweeted something basically saying this. You know, well, when they get spring training going, what you do is it's basically the plan that we've all heard. You test all the players, right? You swab the nose, the whole thing. Everybody's negative. That's beautiful. All right. Gary Cohen, Keith and, and uh, Keith and Ron are going to do the game on TV. Test them. Great, they're fine. Umpires are fine. Coaches are fine. And you, and the video production people. Okay, everybody's good. Let's let's go. And playing in front of no crowd. You, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's uh, maybe, maybe not. I, I get that fans are a big part of it. Players feed off that. But let's just say it would be okay to play without a crowd. But here's the problem with it, right? As much as I thought that was a great idea. What Ron Darling was saying makes sense because, okay, these guys have to go back to the hotel, all right, because they're not going to live at the ballpark. Okay, let's go back to the hotel. What if there's a hotel worker whose significant other had it asymptomatically? That hotel worker now goes, you know, doing the thing, you know, cleaning the room, whatever. Players go go to the room, touch something, touch their face. Now a player has it, like John was saying. And that player can infect 
the entire team and the, and the opposition and the umpires. So are you going to test them every day? You know, <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, you almost have to. You can't test them once because you, you, they will not live in a bubble. They will eat. There will be people serving them food. There will be people cleaning their rooms. You don't know where those people are. So they could be the whole thing. Why this thing is what it is is because people are asymptomatic. They don't know that they have it. They're passing it on others. Well, to the degree that these people will be impacted by other people, and it will happen, whether it's food, hotel, transportation, what have you, think about all the tentacles that has out there. And then because they're all in close quarters like that, one guy gets it, they can all get it. So as much as I, I wanted it to happen, and I still do, you think about it, and, and the only way you could really, to John's point, ensure safety would be to test people every day upon entry. You, there's no other way. You can't assume one test covered it. That's my take. Wow. <laughs> so, Sam, you know, this, like I said, this is going to take two rounds. You know, is testing viable at sporting events, mass testing? Do umpires and managers have to practice social distancing at home plate. Uh, you know, airlines, hotel, as Rich brings up, that's mass interaction again. Uh, case in point, look, Japan, they suspended play of their baseball season and tried to take starting it back up. Somebody tested positive, and they, had to, and they wound up canceling their season. So, round two, Sam. Uh, I, I think... Those are just such excellent points. I mean, uh, you know, like, it just makes me think of, and obviously we've kind of gotten rid of the umpire-manager arguments, but, like, just even, like, considering them trying to argue with each other from six feet, it's just the entire thing kind of just gets butchered. Everything you guys are talking about makes perfect sense. It, it's it's a fine line. It, it, it's a slippery slope it's a double-edged sword as to what you're saying if, if they go back without crowds. So, it, and, and the, entire, the entire thing just is already making me think about how everybody's consciousness is going to be after all of this. Um, and, and, and that's another reason. That's why it, if, if June and July is the cutoff where everybody can get back together without too much paranoia, then great, let's do that. But I'm with you guys that, and especially I think John just put it perfectly, and, and you know, uh, all the points Rich made were, were spectacular too. Just how, why are they exempt from everything we're trying to practice? Because they, uh, just like any of us, can spread it as well. John, I'm sure you have more thoughts on this. Go ahead. Yeah, so listen, so true. I think I, I think a lot of the points that are being made make a lot of sense, and it's it's just weird because I think I think there's a part of what we're trying to create or what we'd like to do in our mind. We'd love to see, you know, our favorite sport or sports in general, but with this whole social distancing that doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon, it's just hard to imagine anything in the conditions that we're living in right now. So I think a baseball season or anything that we see positive going forward is going to be, is going to have to be contingent on something changing from 
the situation that we're in right now. Maybe it's a vaccine. Maybe it's a possibility that everybody can get tested easily. Maybe a test gets created that we could all test ourselves. There has to be some progress before we could even think about leaving our house, let alone having any sort of activity that's going to involve people being near each other. So I, 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 I need to see, or I think we all need to see, something change in a positive way before we can further this discussion and talk about when it makes sense to have a baseball season, when it makes sense or what the conditions should be for the upcoming NFL draft, should basketball and hockey resume at any point. Before we could have discussions like that, we need to see some changes in a positive way through the way that we are being forced to live our lives right now. Rich, you're in Connecticut, and I think this is a matter of confidence. Sporting events will bring together people from, you know, the greater tri-state area. You come from Connecticut to go to make games. What about the employees and, and, you know, fans, et cetera? Let's make something up here. Say things kick off 4th of July. Are you confident enough to bring your kids to a game in August? I've thought about that. Um, And the short answer is I don't know. I mean, that's a short answer because, again, what I'm going to go by, Mike, is going to be what the CDC says, not what Donald Trump says, not what, you know, people's opinions are. I'm going to go by what the CDC says. And if they say, you know what, we've got it basically under control, it's okay to, you know, start doing what you want, be careful, people, you know, don't socially distance when you can, you know, but it seems like we're through the worst of it. That's not enough for me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going. Honestly, I'm not. Um, I'll sell my tickets, and um, I'm just not comfortable with it. Now, if something else, like if it's a, um, if it's a different situation where they say it's basically eradicated, there hasn't been a new case in two weeks, it looks like everything's okay. You know, we, we recommend resumption of life is normal. Yeah, I might consider going at that point. But, um, but you know, I, I think it's all in phases. You know, I, I think we – if we're going to wait to a point where we get the all clear, we're not going to have a season. I mean, let's be honest. There's not going to be a season. So that, that point's not coming until – if you look at the curves – that point's really not coming until around the 4th of July, where they say it'll be down to next to nothing. Even next to nothing might not make people comfortable, right? But So if that's the 4th of July, then we, then we go with, okay, that's the time we could really start this thing up. Guys that have to go to spring training season start in August. And by that point, we may, that decision may be out of our hands about whether or not we want to go, because there may not be a season. So... I think the whole thing is um, it's up in the air, really, about, as we know, this is a fluid situation. Four weeks from now, you know, let's fast forward to the first week of May, what conversation are we having? Are we having the conversation where, oh, my goodness, you know, the curves have really gone way, way down. It looks like we're going to have this thing well under control by the middle of May and eradicated by June 1st. That's one conversation. The other conversation is, well, you know, we keep pushing out the peak timeline a bit. The peak might not be the Memorial Day. That's an entirely different conversation. So I guess, in short, my answer to your question is my comfort going 
will be a, a function of what's exactly going on, because I don't think anybody could crystal ball this thing, and then secondly, what the expert guidance is at that point. So it's just a big unknown, really. So, Sam, allow me to play role of contrarian for a second. Uh, I'm going to ask you to talk to theorist. Uh, and John, this goes for you as well. They declared the air safe at ground zero in the name of capitalism. Do you trust these people to make a good decision and allow people to die? <laughs> you know, I, I think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. Well, I'll, I'll, I will say, considering we were talking about Dr. Fauci, it, it's Fauci, Fauci, Fauci. Right? Did I get it right? It, it's Fauci with a and, T. Anyway, Fauci. So, so we, I, he seems rather competent, um, and, and he seems to not just be competent, but have the interests of the people at heart. Because that's his job, um, to make sure that we stay healthy and safe. So um, I think, you know, just to put a, sm- you know, put a smile on the face, stay optimistic, I, I do have faith in him right now. Um, the rest of them, I, not so much. But <laughs> I, I think, like, you know, just if we're talking about, Somebody who seems competent at the job they are doing within government realm, he is one of those people. So, um, but but like and, and the, the whole thing, it's it's you know because right now we have like we're we're we've had to trust this new thought process of of shutting the the, the, the country down. And you know, I'll I'll de- I was definitely somebody who has been generally skeptical you know to a certain degree in general because it, it's such a drastic possible change in the way we go about our entire lives let alone the next few weeks um but i did have a neighbor who caught it and died uh somebody one degree of separation basically at this point luckily not a family member but still uh somebody i just saw what i think was a week ago who didn't seem like they were about to to come down with anything, um, and so I I can't not take it seriously, uh, as as much as I as much as like, you know, wearing the mask and gloves annoy me, I still have to do it. Um, so it's I, I guess I guess I'm my answer is incomplete because I do have one particular person that I do think is doing a good job and is telling us the truth. But at the same time, he needs to be the only one talking. <laughs> so, John, like I say, I'm just playing contrarian here, just covering our bases, right? Uh, you're the you're the judge and jury. You get final word on this matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I need to see something change, and I hate to repeat what I said before, but you know, in the current state that we're in right now, I. I don't, I don't, I don't think any, I, I don't think any more confidence should come our way. Should we be optimistic? Absolutely. There, there's nothing in regards to a vaccine. There's nothing in regards to any, um, anything that's out there to make us feel any safer. 
I mean, in fact, all you hear every day is, all right, make sure you cover this, you cover that, stay away, stay away. So, I, I mean, and something's got to change. That, that can't be a constant. Once that's the constant every day, uh, stay away from everybody. Try not to get this thing. It's running rampant. Newscast starting with another person died. Then we're not making any progress. I need to see some progress, something to make me feel like I could walk out of my house, something to make me feel like I could, ha- I could get within six feet of somebody that's around me, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a way that we could test ourselves until that, until that happens, I'm sorry. My confidence in being able to move forward with this doesn't exist. Something has to change now for the positive. And up to this point, it hasn't. So if tomorrow is like today and then the day after that is like today, then we're going to be in the same constant state of panic that we're in right now. Hang in there, folks. Hang in there. Uh, let's change the mood. Rich, this day, 37 years ago, Tom Seaver returns to Shea Stadium, pitches opening day, 1983. Uh, he ties Walter Johnson's record for most opening day starts. Your recollections of 1983? Well... I was at the game, which was great. Um, still friends with all the guys I went with, by the way. And um, so it was, you know, it was amazing to see him back. I mean, let's face it, going into the 1983 season, coming off of a disastrous 1982, where they had acquired George Foster, you know, and expectations were high, and they finished in last place. And 83 wasn't going to be a whole hell of a lot better. Yes, we know what happened in June. Keith Hernandez, the beginning of, of the turnaround, okay. But going into 83, you knew the team, you weren't buying your World Series tickets. But Seaver was back. And it was must-see TV. I mean, it was like, it was amazing to be there and, and all year watch Seaver pitch in a Mets uniform. Um, and it, it gave that season, there were two things about that entire season. It was Seaver being there and, and the acquisition of Hernandez that made, you know, made the Mets must-see TV. And um, so my recollections are, you know, it was wonderful when they got him. Um, it was amazing being there. You know, he, he, we probably all remember, or if you saw it on TV or whatever, or, or, you know, that um, he walked in from the bullpen as opposed to taking the cart so he, the fans would have a chance to cheer him the entire way. And, um, and then he pitched very well that day. I, don't, I believe he did not get the win. I believe he did not factor in the decision. Mets won the game. But I, if I remember correctly, he went out in the sixth inning of a scoreless game. The Mets scored late to win. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but that's my recollection of it. But anyway, um, it was wonderful to have him back. And that amazing feeling of, of having Seaver back and, um, and having something to cheer for, what happened in the off season, you know, is it's a different story when they didn't protect him and he ended up with the White Sox. But it was something that um, after, you know, the strike season of 81, disastrous 1982, it gave the fans a reason to smile, and it was wonderful. That's my recollection of it. Man, he should have been in the Mets uniform when he won his uh, 300th game. Now, Sam, you know, his return to the Mets was before your conversion, but I'm sure you uh, – well aware of the stems. Uh, yes, I, I am. What's interesting about that 300th win that you mentioned, 
was that I believe Rod Carew on the same day got his three thousand his three thousandth hit, and they were both uh, the the uh, respective rookie of the years of their league. Uh, Rod Carew coming up with the Twins. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In the AL, and of course. Tom coming up with the Mets in the NL. Um, and it, it did feel like there, there's so many things that just felt so strange. It, and he wasn't even in like a classic uh, a White Sox uniform when it happened. He was in that ugly 80s uniform that, that of course, like, you know, has a little bit of, a, of, of novelty to it now, but it's still like, it, it's clearly not the best. White Sox uniform to get your 300th in, but it, it you know it, it is what it is. It happened in Yankee Stadium, which was hysterical, but at the same time did allow for some fans, some Mets fans, to come and celebrate him when it did happen. It always just like I I, I don't understand how you you know uh, through all of his competency, Frank Cashin let that one happen. Um, it's just so you know hysterical to me. Um, and, and I, uh, you know, it, it's, I'm, I'm really happy that he was in that uniform too. And they're, 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 uh, you know, it's not just, um, a, it, it's not fake putting Seaver's name on the racing stripe Jersey because it did exist that way at some point, but it's so crazy to me that Frank Cash ever let him, uh, uh, go by the wayside. John, I would also like you to, as a baseball historian, wh- where do you, you know, it's a tough call, you know, off the top of your head, but where would you rank Tom Seaver in all-time history? Well, I'd have to, first of all, you have to separate it from pitchers from hitters. Uh, and I never want to have a discussion and yeah. say that. So, I, I, and I know it maybe, maybe it sounds silly to mention that, but, you know, it's just something that, you know, you, you think you think of top pitchers, and it obviously has to be broken down in errors and stuff like that. But there's there's no reason why Seaver can't be somewhere between ten and fifteen all time when it comes to pitchers, just for what he was able to do, um, his impact not just on the Mets franchise but on baseball, and really what he what he kind of led to the you know the Tom Seaver movement that you know drag and drive you know, working from the legs was something that, you know, you could trace baseball history back as far as you want. Nobody, nobody focused on, on their legs as much as, you know, Seaver and Nolan Ryan, you know, before that it didn't happen. It was pretty much all in the arm and you've seen what's happened in the last 20 years or so since it really is all in, you know, the bicep and the shoulder and the elbow. That's where all the strength is with all these pitchers. That's why they're throwing so hard. You know, Tom Seaver can throw the ball hard, but it wasn't about his fastball. He was, he he was a Picasso out there. He he painted the perfect picture. He went out there and he was able to what what he put together was something that you know you didn't really see, and it made him the generational talent that he was. So, uh, I mean, especially what he did in the the you know the early part of the seventies. Um, if you look at pretty much from you look at 69 through about 75, 76, and compare that to what Pedro did in his prime. 
go back in time and compare that to Walter Johnson in his prime. And you're looking at three distinct pitchers that pitched at three distinct times, but were probably just as dominant for the generations that they pitched. Let us now transition over to number 49. Let's Can I, uh, Mike, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I want to put just one. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I want to just put a cherry on top about Tom Seaver. Um, one of the things that always stuck out to me as somebody who didn't actually watch him pitch was the way that he would talk about pitching. And he, he really would not just, not just state that pitching was an art form, but dissect it in that same way about the canvas that he had in front of him and talking about, and, and, and the way when they, when they honored him, I believe it was either 86 or 87, they honored him, he went to the mound and in the round bowed to everybody like he was a maestro. Um, I remember in, I think it was like, it was the first year that they, it might've even been in the first few weeks that they, they had acquired Yohan Santana. They put Yohan and Tom together just to have a conversation about baseball. And if, if SNY was smart with all the content that they're trying to fill right now, I would pull that thing out of the, the archives because I haven't seen that in, in ages. But it was a fascinating, fascinating conversation to watch two masters have at two different eras, of course. Yeah, you couldn't help but benefit just being around them. I wonder what, you know, this pandemic does to the statue unveiled uh, schedule for this season. Interesting. Anyway, like I said, let's transition to number 49. That's players who have won the number throughout their history. Going back, I'm sure you guys have looked over the list. Uh, back in the 60s, we had John Stevenson and Dick Rustek. Uh, moving on to the 70s, Kevin Coble, pitcher for the Mets during the dark years, Dyer Miller, Walt Terrell, Ed Hearn, Don Schultz, Don Ace, Todd Hundley wore the number briefly. Joe Whitko, Pete Walker, Bob McDonald, Joe Crawford, Brad Plant, oh, Armando Benitez. I have a feeling we have a big conversation about him. Orber Moreno, Roberto Hernandez, Philip uh, Humber, John Neese, Josh Smoker, and Tyler Bachelor. So, Sam, I'll bounce it right back to you. Number 49. Uh, you know, I'll go with what I said last week. I'm um, sorry, I'm parking. <laughs> Apologies for the, the sound. But I'll go to what I said about Armando Benitez last week. It didn't matter the amount of saves he collected with the Mets. It didn't matter what the stats looked like. Mets fans will always have a sour taste in their mouth for that pitcher. And it, it, it's unfortunate, but, you know, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if it weren't for Armando Benitez and the way he pitched to Paul O'Neill, then we very well could be talking about the Mets having won three World Series and uh, only lost two as opposed to the other way around. So, um, you know, Armando Benitez will always just just be one of those those Oliver Perez-type names that uh, will, will just bring just shivers to Mets fans anytime he's mentioned. Um, looking at the list now, um, Roberto Hernandez, you know, I, I always liked him, it, it, and he changed his number very quickly, it seems. But, uh, you know, I always remember that the, a big reason why, you know, he's listed as having played for the Mets is because of Duaner Sanchez. So you're always going to be thinking about 
those two players together. Um, Philip Umber, uh, you know, another player to get a no-hitter, a perfect game, uh, not in a Mets uniform. And, of course, Philip Umber will always be known for uh, the trade that I of a player I just mentioned, Johan Santana. Um, you know, Josh Smoker, I like Josh Smoker. I really wish that he could get it together because he was a fun player on the mound to just watch perform. He had a good personality for the mound. And it seemed like for New York, it's just his numbers were never there. And um, I, I, I'm guessing he's not in the organization anymore. Um, and John Neese, he always seemed to have an excuse, never really seemed to own up to why he wasn't pitching properly. Um, it, it, it was that, that art of pitching that we were talking about. John Neese just didn't seem to have it. And I'll tell a quick John Neese story. Um, that did humanize him a little bit for me. And it was just from sitting next to him uh, when I, I was lucky enough to hang out with some Mets in 2012. And I was in the club with them uh, after an event that I, I just ended up because of my, my schmoozing or my, you know, you could also call it my big mouth. I ended up picking backing on, on a, a night with the Mets. But I'm sitting next to John Neese and all of a sudden I get the urge that I, I got to tell him, and I, I lean over to him and I say, I've been giving you shit, man. And he goes, you've been giving me shit? And I'm like, yeah, I've been giving you shit. And Kelly Shopik, who was a catcher in the Mets acquired in 2012 uh, for the second half of the season, he walks by us. And John Neese looks at him and goes, hey, he's been giving me shit. And Kelly Shopik just puts up his hands and shrugs and keeps walking. So that's my John Neese story. Todd Hundley, you know, my very first impression upon hearing about the Mike Piazza trade was, but we got Todd Only. I was a big fan of his. But, you know, it later dawned on me what we were really getting. <laughs> uh, within a half hour, I was like, all right, we, we, we'll figure this out. So, Rich, number 49. Well, you know, I'll focus on Kevin Coble. Uh, Mark, you know, Mike, you mentioned the dark years, and um, – Certainly, that's when Kevin Colbert was a Met. Uh, just looking at his numbers here, I find it interesting. 79 was one of the worst years in the history of the organization. And in, in 1979, Kevin Colbert was 6-8 and eight with a 3-5-1 ERA. That's pretty good. On a bad team, he pitched to a 3-5-1 ERA. Obviously, his 6-8 and eight on a, with, that, with that ERA, you would think that that record would have been a lot better on a better team. And then if you look at the 1978 Mets, again, of course, that was the first year of Willie Montanez, one of my all-time favorites. But um, And I say that seriously, he really was. Uh, but 1978 also was a bad year for the team. Coble pitched to a 2.991 ERA and was only 5-6. and six. So it shows you just how bad those teams were. Um, Kevin Coble was, you know, a solid starter. You can tell by those numbers for a couple of years on some very bad teams, and I believe he was traded to the Padres for Randy Jones. Um, and uh, so Randy Jones, you know, had a, a Cy Young that was in his rearview mirror a few years when the Mets got him, and he was, you know, pretty bad as a Met, but Coble was ultimately used as, a, as trade bait there. So I'll, I'll talk about him a little bit. Dyer Miller was, um, you know, kind of the non-spectacular reliever in 1980-1981, kind of the journeyman reliever. Walt Terrell, what an interesting pickup he was. He was in the Mazzilli trade. Walt Terrell was another guy who, um, not spectacular, but a solid performer. 
I remember a game at Wrigley in the 1983 season when he hit two home runs in the game and pitched a complete game. Talk about a day, huh? Um, so Walt Terrell came over in uh, bad circumstances. Nobody wanted Mazzilli traded. I certainly didn't. But for a couple of years, Walt Terrell was solid on the mound. Um, and then, you know, we already talked about Jonathan Neese. Uh, not much more to add there. You know, longevity was there. One thing I will say, I remember being at the, uh, the Sunday night playoff game against the Cubs in 15, and the only time that, to my recollection, the Mets were really kind of in trouble in that game, they had the lead, but the Cubs had a couple guys on. I believe Rizzo was up. And Nice came on and got him out, out of the bullpen. So I, I'll thank John Nice for that and say, you know, he was a decent pitcher on some bad teams. You know, 2012 was not a good year. 13 was not a good year. Serviceable, nothing special. I do appreciate him, though, for what he did in, uh, in the postseason against the Cubs, especially that one out that he got, which was a key out in that game, game two. And then finally, Bachelor, you know, one of the guys that the Mets got back for Addison Reed. And um, so here's a guy who throws really hard, but in his very – obviously the jury's out on him, but in his very limited appearances, uh, has not been successful, has not been able to harness that, that good live arm of his. And, you know, who knows what his future might be with the Mets, but, um, but there's certainly some talent there to harness, um, and maybe they can get something out of this guy. Ed Hearn, World Series champion. So, John, what say you about number 49? Um, I will touch on things that each one of you have said since you guys have covered 49 pretty well. Um, April 21st, 2012, Philip Humber pitches the only complete game shutout of his entire career. It turns out to be a perfect game. He's the only pitcher in baseball history to have one complete game, one shutout, and one perfect game. Obviously, we know that he was a, an important piece going to the Twins to get the Mets' Johan Santana. And obviously, Santana's impact on the Mets you know, really can't be described with words. Walt Terrell came over, of course, like Rich mentioned, in the Lee Mazzilli trade a trade that wasn't very popular at the time, but one that really was a turning point in the Mets kind of turning themselves around. Getting Terrell and Ron Darling in that trade, um, Walt at the time was more major league ready, more was able to fit in sooner. But the Mets in that trade were able to kind of build themselves in the right direction. Terrell, of course, ends up going to the Tigers' in a trade for Howard Johnson after the 84 season. And Mike, you, you mentioned Ed Hearn, very quiet member of the 1986 World Series championship team. Um, unfortunately, he had some injuries shortly after the 86 season that ended up derailing his career. And it really kind of became prominent after he was traded to Kansas City in the deal that got the Mets' David Cohn. Um, Ed Hearn now is a motivational speaker and he's doing pretty well with himself. Uh, you know, really, really nice guy. And, you know, I, I look back at the 86 Mets, and I know Ed Hearn, you know, didn't get a whole bunch of hits for them, but was a very, very underrated member of that Mets World Series championship team, particularly in the time that Gary Carter was hurt during the 86 season. 
I know John Gibbons had come up and he hit a little bit and some brief at bats, but you know, Ed Hearn during the regular season got some important plate appearances that kind of helped that team. So, you know, if I think of 49 with the Mets, it's kind of the three players I just mentioned, Humber, Terrell, and Ed Hearn. You've been listening to a Metsian podcast. Our guest this evening has been the host of a past ball show. We're going to move over into our final word. Uh, And Sam, I'll let you begin. Uh, I will... I will say that my final word is take it easy. Not to say that we don't need to have these precautions uh, to keep this virus at bay, but everybody, you know, uh, give a virtual hug. Obviously it's something that none of us are really able to do right now is, is, is have physical embracing, you know, and, um, if you get a chance, something I was thinking about as, as I go around with a mask on is that sometimes a smile can brighten your day. And it's a hard thing to, to see from everybody right now because so many people are wearing masks. So if you're six feet away from somebody, just take a, take a second to take your mask off and smile because it could change the perception and, and reality for anybody at any particular moment. Rich? Well, I'm going to use two words. Who knows? Um, Will there be a baseball season? Who knows? If so, when will it start? Who knows? When will the curve go down? When will it be, quote-unquote, gone? It's got to go at some point. The Spanish flu did. Who knows? It's a time of, you know, it's fear and uncertainty, and the two are together because one leads to the other, of course. I think it's the uncertainty that, that most of us are afraid of. So it, it's not comfortable for us to walk around with a who knows on everything. But um, that's where we are. And as Sam said, I like what Sam just said. You know, we the entire nation, whether you're a Mets fan, a Yankees fan, a Phillies fan, a Mets fan, or whatever you do or like, you're no different. We're all in this together. So, you know, let's be cool to each other. Let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's follow the rules and see if together we could we could bring this thing down. Well said, gentlemen. Uh, the next two weeks may make or break us. Uh, let's just come together and do what we got to do as citizens, do our little part, and we should be able to get through this, hopefully. John, thank you for your time this evening. Thank you for returning to a Metzian podcast. Uh, before you get to your final word, please remind us, you know, what it is that you're doing and where we can find it. The floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you. Once again, guys, it's uh, it's always a pleasure coming out with you. You guys got a great show. And, uh, you know, what, like I, I opened with, I wish I could be on with you guys in more of a, you know, in more better circumstance. But, you know, it's out of our control. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a spot where there is a lot of negativity going around. And we, we have a lot of control over that. And, you know, I think each one of you have said at, at one point today that, you know, positivity is very important. And we have the chance to impact somebody's day for the, for the better just by saying something nice, just like Sam said, a simple smile. Um, I think it could go a long way because there's a lot of people that, you know, really are not sure what tomorrow is going to bring. 
And even if you're not sure yourself, you know, a little bit of positivity and a, a you know a little bit of positive energy can go a long way. So I do want to thank you guys for having me on. It's always a pleasure talking to you guys. And hopefully the next 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 time you guys are on, you know, we're talking about getting a little bit closer to baseball. Uh, just to you know, add to what you just said, John. Uh, you know, I'm on that essential list. I got to be out there working, and I'm getting a lot of positivity and uh, warm feeling from the people out there. You know, I do get a hello and, and you know, stay safe and comments from the general public. So I thank you, Brooklyn. So Sam, take us out of here. The only way you know how. And before that, I'd just like to thank everyone for putting up with our, I guess, attempt at social distraction. Uh, I hope you were able to, uh, you know, put you in a different state of mind for an hour. So, Sam, take us home. Like I said last week, I can't wait to be saying this directly to the Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Let's. Go Mets! Let's go Mets and stay safe, everyone. Until next week. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.